All right. So, <laughs> you know, you see, you know, something like this is happening when you know that we're about to have a pretty phenomenal episode. That's we right. got to change the scenery. We got to change the location and everything else. We got okay. offices being reconstructed. Uh, we got a pretty all-star studded cast today. So, Julian, are you ready? Yes. All right, I'm let's get the formalities out of the way before we just like make that good old transition. What's right. good, everybody? I'm Mark Monroe, accompanied by my wonderful co-host, co-producer, co-creator, and all things galactic. Give it up for none other than the wonderful. It's Jolene GC in the place to be. What does it? Cousins on this fine Tuesday. Yes, yes, yes. And welcome to Executive Education. And we got quite the doozy for you today. Uh, so without further ado, because we made y'all wait for a little bit of time, but just know the waiting is definitely worth it. Go ahead. It cue that intro. So uh, today was quite the day if you were like watching, like, you know, we had Chairman Powell on Capitol Hill giving mm. testimony in front of the the finance committee, which was look. holding his ground, Mark, holding his ground. Yeah. It was look. interesting. Oh, <laughs> Yo, shout out to Chairman Powell, because honestly, I'm going to be real with you. There is no way that I'm going to sit there and do that. So he is the guy for the job. But we got another individual who is perfect for the job. And he is definitely going to break down a lot of information yes. for people tonight. So normally what we do on executive education, we try to give you MBA related uh, material. And tonight is going to be no exception to that. But we're going to definitely upgraded a little bit because we got a phenomenal guest but before we get to that phenomenal guest because yeah. you know i felt like we would be remiss jolyn if we didn't bring a few cousins alongside with us go ahead what's good time, what's out, time out before we even talk about you know the cousins that we're bringing on we have to show that samuel have been here <laughs> yes Some difficulties just waiting so appreciate you thank you so much and thank you for sticking with us through the uh, the technical difficulties. Let's just get some of the formalities out of the way. Be sure to like, subscribe, and comment down below if you have questions. And we'll definitely be filtering through some of your questions in the chat. Shout out to our cousins all the way over there from LinkedIn. Uh, so, all right. So who's first? I mean, normally you see him on Monday nights, but you know we had to put him on hold for Monday just to bring him in from for tonight's episode. So let's give it up for none other than the Panther, Mr. Lawrence Eggleston. Hey, Lawrence. How you doing? How you doing? Hey, what's going on with you guys, man? Super excited for tonight's episode. You know, me and Mark, we <laughs> talked about this one for a while. You know, we got did. all last week, the back call. You know, I answered the back call. I said, hey, I'll be here on Tuesday. Um, you know, we'll be back on Monday night take next week. I uh, definitely needed a day off yesterday. Got a lot of things taken care of in the pipeline. But, um, you know, we got a lot of stuff cu cooking up and I'm excited for tonight's show. So let's get it. Nice, nice, nice. But, you know, I can't take all the credit for tonight. I cannot. 
I cannot take the credit at all because I got to give it up for this cousin who's definitely been putting a lot of the work in motion to make sure that these things happen. So let's bring on cousin Dave to the stage. What's good? Hey, hey what's good, family? Been a minute. It's been a blessing. Blessing. Good to see you. Well, you know, we, you know, I, I feel like, you know, tonight, you know, honestly, it's like I'm going to like allow myself to decrease while the two individuals that we brought on today to let them increase and ask some dope questions. Don't get me wrong. I'm definitely going to ask some questions tonight. But you know what? And in that spirit, Dave, I'm actually going to let you in like introduce tonight's guest. This is never done before on a show that I've done. So. Look, I'm going to let you take the floor, brother. I yield my time. All right. So for this very guest that we have, who has a very stellar, very impressive background, he was part of Obama's transition, uh, economic transition team. He was a renowned professor at my state that I came from, Jersey, <laughs> Rutgers <laughs> University, very own. And he is now the VP and one of the directors on the economic. On this, gotta, gotta say this right. Gotta say this right. <laughs> Take your time. Take your time. And he is director for the Institute of Economic Equality or Equity at the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. Awesome. Cousins, bring me. Allow me to introduce Bill. Bring him out. And Rogers the third. Bring him out. I'm well. I'm well. I'm well. I thought you know, I'm a little older than you guys, and this is getting close to my bedtime. And I was, my energy was gonna be gonna be low, but you guys are, you know, I'm gonna bring, <laughs> bring my energy. You guys are pulling me along. I love it. I love it. We got you. We got you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We know that you're busy. We know that we got a lot of questions to get into, but before we get into all that, just tell the little, just tell the cousins a little bit about yourself, uh, cousin Bill. Like, tell us about your journey of how you got here. Yeah, well, I'll start most uh, currently with my journey. I've got three wonderful adult kids. They're the loves of my life. Uh, daughter, who's a, a graphic illustrator in Brooklyn. Uh, you've seen some of her stuff, uh, and a young lady named Ellie Rogers, and then uh, two sons, one's in Baltimore, uh, 25, 26, and then the youngest one's just in Boston, just graduated from Northeastern back in the back in the in, in the spring, and has this wonderful job. And the only two blemishes on my parenting is that I got one kid who he's a Boston fan, another kid who's a New York Yankee. Man. Otherwise, I think I've been doing a pretty good job of raising my kids. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of like, you know, where am I from? Um, you know, part of it's why I decided to go back to St. Louis or go to St. Louis. My father was born in, in the Delta, um, in the Friars Point, Mississippi. Um, and uh, they, my grandfather, who I'm named through, he was born in 1901. Uh, hmm. Third, my my grand my grandfather was born, and my great grandfather had gone to town and found that uh, President McKinley had been shot, uh, and he got home and he found he had a new son, so he named him William McKinley, and he was uh, named Sandy. Um, didn't go to college or high, you know through high school, but he was uh, moved the family up to Memphis, and he and my grandmother they actually ran a uh, a nice uh, dry cleaning business for most of their you know their career. I remember being young. And actually sitting on, going to visit, sitting on the stoop 
uh, you know, just inside the door, watching people coming in and seeing him, you know, uh, doing his stuff and then my grandmother doing her stuff. So uh, that's where it all started. Um, I'm the youngest. I'm the actually youngest. I'm the oldest of three. Got a, a sister who's in Chicago with a family and then a, a brother who's in Connecticut with a, with a family, too. And, uh, you know, we just uh, and then there are a variety of cousins that uh, we got. I don't want to miss the number, but we've got lots and lots of cousins out there. because There were eight kids in my father's family. And uh, love to be a little closer to folks, but uh, this has been fun heading back to the district because I've, I've been to Memphis already. I've been to Jackson, Mississippi, Little Rock, uh, Lexington, uh, Lexington, Louisville, Kentucky. And, uh, this is only in the first uh, year and a half. So we're, we're just starting to get really busy. And, uh, and it's all about empowering people and communities with economic thought and analysis. That's, that's my personal mission. Nice. Okay, so... Okay, so- Let's let's get the obvious question out of the way, shall we? Mark, your audio. What is economic equity? Ah, glad you asked. <laughs> but, uh, let me. Say, but I do have to share this one little disclaimer that uh, what I share with you tonight, and uh, and hopefully this is not just the uh, first time that I spend time with you all. Uh, I'd be lo- love to uh, come back uh, anytime, any day. But uh, but I do have to dis- give a disclaimer that everything I say. Uh, does not reflect the policies or the stances or the views of the of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, particularly Jim Bullard, our president, uh, nor does it reflect the system-wide thinking in terms of our policies. Uh, and and the only other thing, too, I cannot talk about monetary policy uh, in terms of what direction we should be going. Um, that's, I, I leave that to my bank president and to the to my colleagues at the FOMC. But in terms of the question, what is economic equity? And I, the best way I like to give it is give an example. Uh, there's a, a graphic that's, that's widely distributed on the internet uh, that, that, that does a nice job. And it shows three young men who are at a baseball game, little, little league game, and they're in the, they're in the outfield. Uh, one of them is very short and he can't see over the fence. So he's, not, he's got an obstructed view. Uh, the uh, second gentleman is slightly taller uh, but he's got a slightly obstructed view. And then you have the third guy who's who's 6'5 or whatever, but he, but he can clearly see and watch the game. Well, equality, excuse me, would be coming in and giving everybody the same, let's say, crate to stand on to be able to see the game. Well, that, if you do that, that just helps out the tall person, or he's out really helped because uh, he can already see. Maybe now the, the middle-sized person, he's able to see just a bit more, but still can't have it, doesn't have a fully obstructed, uh, unobstructed view. And then the shortest person still, given that whatever we gave everything, we gave everything the same, they still may not be able to see. That's, and that would be kind of a quality of trying to create opportunity uh, to see the game. Equity would be giving the individuals what they need to succeed. So for that shortest person, you might give them, or you would give them a bigger crate that they can stand on to where they can really see. And then that middle middle person would get a smaller crate because they don't need as much right to, to 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 solve their remedy. And then the third person, obviously in this case, would not get a would not get a get a crate to stand on because they're they're you know they they don't need the support. Uh, so that's my quick quick example of how I would describe equity. Uh, cousin, oh, cousin Bill. Yeah. So what is it called when we just knock down the fence? <laughs> what is it called? We knocked down the fence. Right. Um, what is it called? I have to tell you that that is, what would you, we call that? Um, 
some people might, some people, I'm not saying I, this is my view, but some people might interpret that as revolution, mm -hmm. that might serve, serve that as, you know, we're viewing that fence as, the, as um, some kind of structural racism, structural barriers, right, that have made, made it hard for or, or impossible for certain groups to accumulate wealth or to accumulate opportunity or to try to create, to create opportunity. Um, and, and, that's, and that's a great question because that leads into you mentioned that I run this, I'm the director of the Institute for Economic Equity. And one of the reasons why I was willing to accept the offer is that in my profession, now I'm a little more close to 30 years, I suppose, and I try not to count. Um, but, but we end up, you know, we end up, there's a big debate in the economics profession uh, that's while well, other professions are like, or disciplines are like, why are you debating whether or not discrimination exists? Uh, and that's and that really is uh, a continuous debate uh, that myself and another person who would really be great to have on your show, a guy named Bill Spriggs. He's a, a good uh, co-author. We've written together, great friends over the years. But um, but the but but what's neat about our our mission and the way the center, the institute was set up, is that it acknowledges that those fences create barriers. It acknowledges that to use a track meet uh, metaphor or description. It acknowledges that some people aren't even in the starting blocks. Mm -hmm. Gun goes off, and that there are these structural features or structural barriers or institutions, such as redlining, right, that created uh, differential values in and housing, um, or the, the GI Bill provided an advantage, right, to to to, to white individuals uh, in terms of being able to accumulate what's one of the most important right uh, pieces of, of uh, human capital that you can develop, and that is getting going to college. So uh, we, you know, we are very focused on describing the structure and describing how it either provides privilege and advantage to certain groups or, or it uh, hinders, the, hinders their, their ability to, uh, to, to succeed. Bill, thank you for that insight because um, for the longest at the Come Up series, um, when we first started, Mark and I, we were always talking about closing the racial wealth gap. And then, um, is this my audio that's doing that? Do you hear an echo? Uh, yeah, it sounds like it. We're okay. We're okay. Okay. Um, so we've always talked about closing the racial wealth gap. Um, and we started talking about the fact that we didn't cause that. And so it's not our mess to clean up. However, what does it look like to build a whole new um, like wealth ladder and build it rung by rung? And a couple of things are achieved by that. Um, one, the focus is taken off of this, you know, disparity and then focusing on what we can, what resources we have currently, where we're at, what we can do. And then another beautiful thing about building this, a wealth ladder rung by rung is that multiple people can have access to it. And so when I think of that example that you shared about, you know, what is equality versus what is equity and, you know, giving people what they need and then also what you shared about like just knocking over the fence or what does it mean like if you knock over the fence it's i see um the come up series as that as the as you know knocking down the fence so that people have the access so it's just really great that you're here today um, in the capacity and profession that you're in so that we can really talk about, you know, those systems that are in place now and like what the um, Fed can do um, as far as policy. And I know you can't talk about monetary policy, but it would be great to hear, um, you know, what what are some of the things your department um, is thinking about when it comes to economic equity? Yeah, no, so thank you for, uh, Joanne, for that, that, that setup. And the way I, I, I describe 
what we do at the Institute, I'll start with what's under my locus of control. And, and at the Institute, as I said, we, we are really all about helping individuals, families and communities uh, move from not, not just surviving, mm-hmm. but to thriving. That, that I was very uh, adamant about wanting that, that word, that active word thriving uh, in, in there. And so what, so what do we do? Well, we have uh, three main areas that we focus our research on. And, and we, we see ourselves as the Fed and my institute. We're that neutral third-party convener. Right? We're that neutral third-party convener. Mm-hmm. And, and within, our, within the institute, one of the things that we do, do convenings on or help to educate, help to educate um, Main Street and, and all of, all, every street uh, is we have one focus of our work is on wealth, wealth equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can do a promo for, for some of our work, but we have uh, the State of Economic Equity. It's an annual series of blogs that are, that are published by myself and, 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 and my staff. Uh, this, the thir- chapter three, which I hope to talk about earlier, later, today, later in the conversation, it focuses on cases for economic equity. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll come back, come to that in a minute. Uh, what, what I mean by that, but in terms of our wealth work, uh, we've we've done a great deal of good uh, descriptive work to, to document these 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 yawning uh, wealth differences. And I don't and we know what some of the, the, the how large those things are, so I don't want to get into the, those numbers. But but what uh, Lowell and Anna Kent, Lowell, Lowell Ricketts and Anna Kent do in their version of or their chapter of State of Economic Equity this year is they build the case for when we don't one of the cost of of wealth and wealth inequity is that it's it's not making our economy as strong as it could be mm-hmm. because what's happening is when we're not providing wealth opportunity wealth accumulation opportunities for certain segments of our population whether it be black folks whether it be women whether it be immigrants um, that we're missing out on innovation we're missing out on right letting uh, Green, bringing people on who could solve some of our climate problems, right? We're missing out on investing in part in people who have different perspectives, which could help to solve some of the some of the the uh, economic challenges that we're that we're facing, right? So, so, so that that was a really, really I think insightful uh, conversation that uh, Lowell and Anna are hoping are, are kicking off. Um, you know, the other the other area that we do our work in, and that's my primary area, and that's called uh, labor and workforce issues. Uh, and and so one of my projects that I that I that I do is uh, because of what's been happening with the economy, the pandemic, and then inflation, is um, for a lot, the best of word I could come up with is vulnerable. And so I've been I have a project on following vulnerable individuals and families. So what do I mean by that? These are groups of people, so blacks and particularly young non-college educated black men. Uh, and women who are like between 16 and 24 years of age, they're vulnerable because their labor force attachments, their attachment to work, their ability to get jobs are much lower. Even even today, where we have a un- national unemployment rate of 3.5, 3.6%, even today, where last month we added another half a million jobs, right, uh, to, to, uh, to, to the economy. These there are these groups that still have uh, have participation uh, rates that are much much lower than some average national average or even some benchmark comparison. The other uh, other types of people who are 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 uh, vulnerable are people with a disability. Right? Their participation is is much much lower again than some benchmark. 
But then the second, and this is, gets into the concern about the economy slowing down, the second sort of way I think about our vulnerable people, populations or groups, that, and that is when there's the, one of my uh, wonderful buddies, uh, con, older economist, Bernard Anderson, who would always say, right, when, when the economy gets um, the flu, black people get pneumonia. Mm. And what that is saying is when the unemployment rate goes up by, let's say, one percentage point, so let's say 3.6 to 4.6, the unemployment rates of blacks were already start out higher, but they go up even more. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by vulnerable. And so there's a whole host of, 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 of groups who, who are at that bottom of that, of that rock bottom rung of that wealth ladder, job ladder. Right. And it's, and it's, uh, and it's connected to the, the, the folks, young folks who are, if they're young, if you're non-college educated and you're not enrolled, right. Those folks continue. And if you're a black uh, or Latino, those folks continue, they have the toughest time. And, and when the economy slows, they're the first ones to, to, to bear the brunt of that. The good news that I'm seeing in the, in the data is, and we're really parsing it very finely, is that um, early, that, that to date, as of December, out of December, uh, there, there has been a little bit of slowdown in the macro economy, but it doesn't seem to have bled through uh, and thus far hurting um, those folks who are the most vulnerable. And then the third area that we focus on is, uh, and another big reason why I wanted to come to the bank and I accepted the offer, is that I have a lifetime of volunteering, working for, on boards like the United Way uh, worldwide, um, soccer coach, baseball coach, uh, planning board, school board member. And, 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 and so our third area that I love is it's our community response, community impact. And one of the things that we've been doing uh, as a part of trying to understand the pandemic and, and now more re- other kinds of disruptions. But we've been collecting data, interviewing people and talking with folks about uh, with, with, with uh, organizations who provide services in communities and talking with them and hearing what's been their experience. And, and the bottom line has been you've had an increase in demand for services, as you would expect. But over this period of time, until uh, the government started to really help, help out, uh, you had a big drop right into resources for many of these community organizations. But, uh, but that's, those are the three buckets that we focus on. And then just the last framework on your question to answer is that I like to think that we do what we call DAN. Okay. We do what we call DAN, where DAN stands for data, mm-hmm. analysis, and narrative. One of the things that has irked me so, so many times, even before I came to the bank, but it's, people would always say, what's the data say? What's the data say? The data, and I hope that you all don't do this if, I, if, I, if, I, uh, if insulting one of you guys. <laughs> but, uh, a lot, but a lot of times people will say, you know, what's the data say? What's the data say? And then you do the analysis and that's, and that's great. But what I have learned early on in my career in a variety of settings of trying to help communities, I, I realized it, it's the narrative. It, it's the narrative. And so I don't tell people what to do. But what I do with my research is as a translator and but more importantly, put it in ways that people who are like yourselves who are having debates with family members or debates with colleagues or people in your community. For example, we've been doing a, a buying power uh, project where we've been able to estimate for, let's say, St. Louis. If we were to equate, so here's the data and the analysis, if we were to equate incomes between blacks and whites, 
that's an additional six billion dollars of disposable income into the into that community, right? And and now why is that important? Well, unfortunately, there are not a lot of not everybody is moved by social justice arguments mm-hmm. as to why we need to have greater equity. So is this kind of like what you were talking about when we yep. when we talk about data? Yep. Yeah. And and so the, and so what we do is I take the data and the analysis further and put it in a narrative form, right, to help people understand. And you can go to those the business folks and you can say, hey, you know, you, you may you may maybe eventually you'll come to understand the social justice imperative of what we're doing. But right now, by not participating or not participating fully in helping to create equity in your community, you're leaving money on the table. You're leaving profits on the table. That's true. Like we went out and I went go dig deeper and I found that about 30% of households, their expenditures go to housing. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a whole host of right housing related types of companies that we know of that hopefully they you know hear this number and they say, Whoa, why are we going abroad to to do to do investments and make money abroad? We can do things here. In, in, in America, right? And so what we're going to be doing is not only generating these buying power estimates for just Blacks, but we're going to be doing them for Latinos. We're going to be doing them for Native Americans. Uh, we're even going to try, figure out how we can do it using the data for, for non-college educated white men. Um, and because what's happened is, and one of the chapters I wanted to write for this year's State of Economic Equity, but, but we went in a different direction. And But I wanted to write a chapter that says, folks, Black women and white men, you have much more in common today than then pearls. Then then you what's that? I said clutch my pearls. Yeah, sure. But that's but that's but that's but let me just give me that the bow. So it's Dan, right? It's data analysis narrative. And it's really that narrative piece is is really, really important. And we're finding that uh, at the end of the last year, I had a number of folks who I'd gone to speak to. Uh, when I started and began to share this, this this narrative approach, and several people have already started to say, "Bill, you're allowing us to have conversations that we haven't had been able to have in the past. You're allowing us to ask questions about the system that we haven't been able to ask in the past." Um, and and these 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 narratives, these so these 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 cases for equity, such as the business case, um, I've been able to present them to. Black audiences, white audiences, diverse audiences, and and what's really been great is a general reception uh, from from everybody thus far. So we're continuing to expand that work. Thank you. Go ahead, Dave. Nice. Well, speak of narratives and, and more of like some of the challenges uh, of economic equi- uh, equity. One thing that you said, and I'm going to quote you here. Is, <laughs> is that strong labor market conditions mass persistent inequalities that exist prior to the pandemic and the surge in inflation. I was wondering if you can tell me, like, how is that narrative that we're seeing that the labor market is so strong, yet we're seeing this disconnect with inflation, and we're also seeing some family begin to struggle? And my follow-up question is, as we see the ending of the SNAP program coming up, how is that going to impact families and the narrative of the uh, labor market? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's a great question. And and one of my uh, RAs, we've been we have actually a deck that we've put together that that shows this very this very dichotomy, right? That you've got uh, we still have very very strong uh, job opening numbers. We still have very uh, strong hiring rate numbers. 
uh, uh, and uh, as I said last month, and it could get revised. We'll see a new jobs report on Friday, but uh, but I but we had over half a million jobs uh, created, which then bumped us back above the, the sort of the, the average increases we've been seeing, and. And and I and yet when we go to the census pulse survey, which my my RA has been doing, we do find that there's been an increasing share of people who are having difficulty meeting their core expenses, housing, food, clothing, uh, and unfortunately, it is families who are the lower part of the income scale uh, that are reporting having those difficulties. And I believe we we're also finding that 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 uh, many black families are saying they're having greater difficulty. Uh, and, I, and I think the, the, re the way I try to reconcile this is that um, we haven't, you know, as I said earlier, we haven't seen um, the, the beginning of, of increases in unemployment rates or the drops in the share of, of, the, of the population that, are, that have got jobs. So people have jobs. It's just now if you are a minimum wage worker or you or you earn higher than the minimum wage, but your wage only goes up when the minimum wage goes up. We call these minimum wage contour jobs that that they don't invisible market market forces don't 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 exert pressure on these wages. And and so what's probably happening is, yes, people are still keeping their jobs. But those especially who are at the lower or middle part of the income scale, because, again, you know, you have to get up into about I think a hundred thousand dollars before before of, of household income before you start having enough disposable income, right? To to be able to weather a storm. I'm going to talk about a group called Alice that I helped to help to uh, to I, for people to identify in a bit, and that'll explain that a little more. Uh, but but the bottom line is what we're happening is we still have lots of job creation, still have lots of job openings, but right uh, wages have not been able to keep up with. Um, with inflation, and it's had the biggest pinch at these right lower and middle income uh, parts of parts of the, of, the, of the economy, and in particular uh, because of a larger share of, of black families are in that in that lower to middle group, um, our our communities are, are are facing these challenges more 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 greater difficulty. Um, now, in terms of the SNAP program, that's uh, being pulled back, and if there if there's nothing or very uh, little to, to, to kind of insulate it. Well, the first fear I'm going to see, right, concerned about is food security, mm -hmm. uh, where food security is this concept of, uh, it's, it's based by, developed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and it's based upon a battery of, I think, 12 questions if you're a household with no children, and then I think 16 questions if you're a household with, ch with children. But it basically captures, right, your, your, um, a frequency, your ability to meet your meet your uh, your, your food um, uh, budgets, and and so one of the natural things we we'll possibly see will be uh, an increase in food in food insecurity, and and you know and and that's unfortunate because one of the big lessons that I think many people got or either became more aware of was was to see that the pandemic showed that there are a whole host of people out there working hard, right? being being in poverty or having a, or being uh, being an Alice family, where Alice stands for asset limited, income constrained, and employed. So Alice stands for asset limited, income constrained, and employed. And it's basically the share of households in your community that don't have enough resources to meet to meet their. Uh, so it's just a survival budget. What do you? What percent of American households do you think are Alice? Mm -hmm. 
that, that again, this will include people who are in poverty definition there, government definition, but it also includes these families who don't have enough resources. What share of, what share of the American households do you think are Alice? I would say my best guess would probably be between 55 and 65%. Okay. Jill Lynn? I'm going to say 40%. 40. All right. Dave? I was thinking 20. But... All right. Dr. Panther? <laughs> Your honorary doctor for today. <laughs> um, I would say I would say it's probably somewhere in between thirty to thirty-five percent. Well, think you're about right. Exactly. Prior to the pandemic, was it was in about 30, 33 to thirty-five percent. My district, eighth district that I cover um, in the region, in Arkansas, about forty-two percent. Mississippi is almost fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Right? And and, uh, and and what that translates into is uh, roughly you need roughly forty to seventy thousand dollars in household income to be able to be considered above above Alice, um, and 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 so the, the the issue here is the you were back to your question that Alice was hurting even before the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. right? and that the pandemic really opened up and showed right. It's not even just poor people. It's even it's Alice. It's right. It's people that we know. Right. It's the barista who serves you your five or ten dollar coffee drink. It's the it's your the firefighters in your community. Right. These are Alice. It's it's a young college graduate uh, who's having difficulty getting a job in their major. Right. It's uh, it's 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 teachers. Right. These are and 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 these are people we know. And what's important about this, right, is and this is the narrative piece. Why I love to use the Alice story mm-hmm. is that Alice is hardworking, right? and one of the narratives that came out of the 1980s around poverty, around around issues of you're not succeeding, whose fault was it? Yours. Yours. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And 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 so when we created this concept at Alice. Uh, at the United Way, we were trying to basically change that narrative and help people see that, yes, you may have a 3% poverty rate in your community. That was my county here in New Jersey, Somerset County. But we have over, I think, almost 30% of our households have difficulty meeting their financial resources because of the cost of living, Mm -hmm. right? And and so we that that United Way and then I use the Alice conversation and with with my buying power conversation too to help people see and I've if I've, and I've even had I've, I've been presenting in the district and people have said oh my gosh the Alice conversation the Alice conversation or construct is really really helpful for 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 changing that narrative that uh, that people are lazy or that it's that it's their own fault. Um, and and so we you know we continue to I continue to use it continue to think about ways uh, to to marshal support and and one of those and I'll, I'll I'll share with you and then I'll, I'll get another question but one of the things that we made uh, and it's and it's in several of the blogs that that I've that I've written thus far but we talk about Alice's budget lines so her housing her clothing her food insurance. And then we have a column that says, what does it mean for Alice if she doesn't have good housing? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for Alice if she doesn't have uh, clothing, good uh, clothing for her children or even for herself to be able to go to work? Right. And, and most people get that, get those. But the column that we added that we think that has really helped people to see and make connections because they know out, they know an Alice 
And that is, what does it mean for the community if Alice doesn't have good housing? Yeah. And it, and I know many communities are very segregated, like St. Louis is very segregated. Mm-hmm. But still, and, and, and but still, and so their neighbor, neighbor there, me, couldn't necessarily that you live next to the person, but you are in a different neighborhood 10 miles away, right? Or there's some great work, right, that Jeffrey Canada did in, in Harlem, right, where there you have, right, some of the highest wealth zip codes, not with, with you know, less than a mile, right, from communities that have, right, high concentrations of poverty. And this Alice narrative tells a story that, hey, even, even if you're that, that distant like that, they are your neighbor and their welfare has an impact on them. It's kind of like my business buy, business buying power example too, that when we have persistent equity, we're not as a country, as an economy, as a neighborhood, as a region, we're leaving dollars on the table. We're leaving opportunity on the table. We're not, and 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 it's not a zero sum game. Right? That if we invest in communities, invest in people, yeah, we all do well. Go ahead, Lawrence. Yeah, Lawrence, you have a question. Yeah, no, I I wanted to ask him. I wanted to ask him a question. Um, I was sending back, you know, pretty much you guys. For for those of you guys, you know, I pretty much watch everything economically. Um, you touched on something with with employment that I that I thought was important to highlight. Um, you know, something that, you know, has been spoken about before when we talk about the unemployment rate, it's at a 50 year low here now, 54 year low to be exact. Um, and there were some questions, you know, aroused, you know, taking a look at, you know, potentially the unemployment rate going to 4.5%. And then also, you know, the number of people that would be affected by that would probably be in a range of about 2 million to 2.5 million people around that range. What would like, what's your thoughts on that? Um, you know, for the people also that have been sent home already there, we've seen a lot of layoffs so far, the first part of this year. Um, and a lot of people have said it reminds them a lot of, you know, early 2000s when the dot com layoffs were happening. What's your thoughts on those layoffs and the significant impact that it has on people? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, one of the and this this gets at our project I mentioned earlier called on vulnerable workers, right? And one of the the, the tried and true kind of unfortunate uh, realities that we just that we see in that in the in in as economies slow down, it's that those at the lower part of the the, the job ladder, if you will, they're the first out. Um, and and what you're describing is potentially right. You have these higher income, higher higher income uh, dot com possible jobs. Those go, but then what happens is those people now are not spending money in the community for re- groceries, retail, et cetera, which then leads to right. Those are the folks who are at the lower rungs of the job ladder. They they lose they lose their jobs. Um, the the I think the the fingers that are being crossed here are that this is happening at a point where we still have, I think the, the number today was, I think uh, roughly like for every uh, job opening, there's uh, like 1.7 people that are, um, or maybe flipped around, that for every uh, person, well, every one person there, almost two jobs jobs being posted are available. So uh, there's always churn in the economy. One cylinder is growing, one is contracting. But uh, but the concern here is that 
you know, if we do, if we do slow down, then it's going to be harder, right, for folks to find jobs. Um, and you could think of it as a, a musical, a game of musical chairs, right? Right now, there's a lot of extra chairs, and so people can hopefully, right, move into the when the music stops and they got to find a seat, find a job that they can, right, move in those chairs. But the concern is, as you mentioned. Um, the forecast right now, and it's a modest forecast that, that the that the jobs that the unemployment rate might by the end of next year be at about four point six percent. That could st- and that could still that could be in a case now where there'll be fewer open jobs, right? And so when the musical stop music stops, we start to have more people not being able to find jobs, and 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 then now for younger people it may be then okay, well let's cons- reconsider going back for more schooling. Um, or for other, or for the older, it's it's more it's job training, um, and but 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 then also what that means is depending upon what kind of slowdown we have, uh, we may then also have to rethink about uh, unemployment insurance and other supports, right, for people. Um, one of the things that you you mentioned, and and we've been thinking about that, and the blog I that dropped this dropped today um, is our third essay in our in our state of economic equity. Uh, it finishes actually with uh, a looking forward and that basically if we were to see an unemployment rate rise, a national unemployment rate rise to about 4.6% uh, by the end of next year, uh, we generate predictions for these vulnerable groups as to what their unemployment rates would look like. And and it's yeah. important to know they're already start like for young black, non-college educated guys who are out of, and women who are out of school, not enrolled. I mean, their unemployment rate is already around 15 to 16%. Um, but even if a, just a slight increase to 4.6%, you're looking at an, an unemployment rate for young black non-college educated who are out of school by ne- end of next year at about 18-19%. Right. So, so it, it's 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 it is uh, again this is part of the narrative that we're trying to help people understand that uh, the, the consequences of of of, of what we're doing. Yeah, I also had another question for you, if you can touch on this. So, um, you know, a lot of times I think that there's some confusion, you know, from like the everyday person over what tools that you guys are and what things are you guys looking at when it comes to like what decisions are being made, not even not even dealing with monetary policy, more so on the inside. Like, how do you guys build your operations like what's like what's a day like for you as someone working in in the federal reserve like what like what is the day-to-day like because i think that i think that will help a lot of people to understand like what is actually some of the things that you have to do because i think sometimes people think that the fed just sits around just has meetings and doesn't do too much but like what's like what's a typical day for you uh typical day (laughs) yeah typical day for me (laughs) Um, I'm glad you didn't ask me with this when I was a professor because my, my, my children give me a hard time about my, about my, about my work life. I've, I've had a very, uh, very good, uh, uh, good, good, good run. But, uh, but the, at the Fed, you know, Monday through Friday, um, a lot, of, you know, my day is, is, is involved with uh, meeting with my staff. Like today, I, uh, met with several of my staff on the on the research projects projects that they're working on. Um, we do, and so, and I've described some of that research already. So let me let me describe some other things that we do. And 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 one of the fun things about our our about the job I have is that 
I get to do great research with some great, great uh, researchers, um, but but I'm not in the re in the formal research department or typical research department that a Federal Reserve has, um, and and uh, we're in community development. So Got my it. my Got institute is housed in community development, which by definition means I have to be outward facing, mm -hmm. and outward facing can be the blogs that I write mm -hmm. or my staff writes, but outward facing can be going to speak at a conference in Jackson, Mississippi. Gotcha. Right. And talking to students there, um, talking with um, uh, officials from the community and and who are trying to trying to improve uh, opportunity in their communities or uh, going to uh, was it Little Rock, Arkansas and speaking at a conference on racial equity. Uh, I had a had a one of my experiences. I had a, a collection of, uh, of white women who came to me after me afterwards and. And they said, I'm from Harrison, New, from Harrison, New Jersey, Harrison, Arkansas. And they said, do you know where that is? And I said, no, unfortunately, I don't. And, and they went on and described that Harrison is a sundown mm. uh, a town. Mm. And then for mm. those who know, that means for blacks, right? We, oh, yeah. we don't want to be right <laughs> out. And, uh, and, and, and she said, one of the, and they said, well, your, comp, your, your uh, case for equity on businesses they said that really resonated with us and we can use that in our work back home. And the reason is they were saying, if you go in and Google Harrison, Arkansas, you'll find out that supposedly the city has been a haven for white supremacy groups. Mm. But what these women are finding, some who work with the Chamber of Commerce and others were other, other leaders in the community, they're finding that that association was effect, adversely affecting tourist numbers. It was adversely affecting um, you know, tourist numbers and, and it was adversely affecting uh, businesses who'd want to come there. Uh, and so they found what we were, what I was sharing with them about right, the adverse effects or the money you're leaving on the table as being something useful for their conversations. Um, I was up in, I traveled, spent time up in Louisville, um, talk, we have something called the breakfast with the breakfast with the fed. Uh, and in each of their, and, and let me back up. So each, there's 12 regional banks throughout the U.S. And we're in the eighth district. Uh, and, and we have St. Louis as our headquarters. Then from there, we have three branches, uh, Memphis, Louisville, and Little Rock. Uh, each of those branches has an, a regional executive who is basically on the boots on the ground, right, talking to people, listening about what their concerns are. Because again, what I said at the beginning, we at the Fed, we're at neutral third-party convener, mm -hmm. um, and what are the, and and so that leads into another part of my my job within community development. We have a group called uh, CPI, Community Partnerships and Investment. Mm -hmm. CPI, Community Partnerships and Investment, led by Sydney Diavu, and Sydney and her team. What they do is they they are boots on the ground also, where they're helping they're. Uh, helping communities efficiently and effectively mobilize their capital such that they can improve right yeah. opportunity uh, in, in those various communities. And so we work hand in hand where they'll say to me, Bill, we have a group that we'd like for you to talk to or Bill, do you all have some research that could help inform right those conversations? Um, and then as a VP, I am also involved with the day-to-day -day management of the bank of the bank. 
Uh, you know, we like one of our big conversations we've had is the issue of return to the bank. How many days should we have people in the in in the office? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and then you can imagine which I prefer working on. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say hybrid. Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jolyn Jolyn has a pretty cool question that I know that she wants to get to to the table. Uh, but Mark, it's in the it's in the context of Dave's question, so Dave can go. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. So, um, you know, one narrative that's really been the kind of like basically motivating a lot of investment and a lot of activity overall this year has been AI. And we talk about chat GPT. Now, the reason I mention this is because one thing we've learned about the pandemic is it's been coined the great uh, accelerator of disruption. Like after that's the one thing we can all agree on. The pandemic created a lot of disruption. A lot of businesses, how we measure the economy, um, or even just the health of just personal health. So, what do you what do you think AI is going to do um, when it comes to these these labor um, disparity that we're seeing, these inequalities, uh, labor equity, like especially the skills that we need to have to keep up with it? Are we prepared? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a great question, and and the way I I'll answer that for you is um, I'm going to step back to robotics. I think you know AR is AI is the next piece of of that conversation. Um, I had done some uh, initial work on this before I came to the bank with one of my colleagues, Richard Freeman, mm-hmm. and we we looked at uh, the the exposure um, of a community's exposure to robots. And one of we this piece was published at the Century Foundation and still out there and I think it's you know still relevant uh, so a few years old, but one of the concerns that we we under uncovered was that you were that we found that particularly the uh, young non college educated that's the theme here one level of the theme but young non college educated black men who lived in the Midwest. They had over our period of analysis, they had the one they had the uh, g- greatest negative impact of um, being exposed to robots, um, and 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 we we saw that their share of employment was falling more than than uh, than, than others uh, had had uh, where where other groups were experiencing. Uh, we we're actually uh, updating that work. Um, and it's just we, we keep on getting things like the pandemic and other stuff getting in the way to, from preventing us to to do to, do, to, to update this work. Uh, and and we're we're really excited because one of the things we we have gotten is the is the job postings um, by by companies. We're working with a with a, a company called Link Up. They're out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And what that allows us to do is the following. Most research that tr- that tries to tease out the adverse of the, the effects of, jo- of robots or even AI, uh, but more so I'm speaking to robots, is that the data that they're using you only are able to see the net the the, the net uh, effect right? because there's two potential stories that go on. There's the substitution story that we're talking about here, right? That robot comes in, it's able to do jobs that let's say less skilled or less educated people were tending to do. And that's the substitution effect. But there's also what they call the product effect. And that 
the robot comes in and you, you may need someone to program it. Mm-hmm. You need someone to, to be the technician to fix it, to recalibrate it. So, so, on, so, so there's jobs that are being going away, but there are also at the same time jobs that are being, being created. And, uh, and one of the things that you know, one, of, uh, one of my over mentors had said you know, pl- applies here is a always know where your next job is or try to know where your next job is, you mm-hmm. know, in your network. And then big thing from my school board days and the mission that we had at our school board was to be an independent thinker, mm-hmm. lifelong learner and a responsible citizen. And if you can do that, you know, when these kinds of shocks hit, hit, hit us, some unexpected, some expected, right? That you're in a better position to be able to, to be able to pivot. So lifelong. I was going to say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Say that again for the students in the back, please. (laughs) (laughs) Lifelong learner. So be curious, independent thinker. When you see something on the internet, ask who's funding it, right? Ask who's, who's, who's publishing it. Why are they publishing it? Why are they saying it right? Ask yourself, okay, is this a news story, news broadcast, or is this just opinions, right? Uh, so independent thinker, lifelong learner, and a responsible citizen. Um, one of the things that uh, I've been able to do, and it's been really fun, is I, uh, as a part of some of the work that we've done, I've, it's led me to reread a lot of uh, things that Dr. King wrote. And I've just, and, and, and that's really been a, been a great, and I lumped that into this idea of being a responsible citizen. And, and being involved in your community and being engaged. Just imagine what the discourse in this country would look like if those three tenets were adhered to. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Sholin, did you have a follow-up? Um, well, it's kind of going in a different direction. So, I mean, if Lawrence, if you have a question, go for it. Otherwise, I'm going to switch gears slightly. For, for sure, yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, another question I wanted to have um, like, well, I would say it's a statement, but it's, it, it also is a is a question. When we, when we think about black and brown people, you know, in this country, um, a lot of times we don't care about our finances. We had the mentality of, you know, you're going to make this money and then you're going to make it right back. Um, we've seen the statistics and the numbers, you know, a lot of people have probably seen the 2053 stuff that's been put out there about black and brown people, different things like that. And we're having a wealth conversation. Um What's it, what's some tips that you can give people to really shift their mind? Because I'm the person that's, you know, you, you mentioned something in the beginning where you talk about there's a lot of people that's really working hard. And that's true. There's a lot of people that are working, you know, two, three jobs and, you know, are, are doing things the honest way, not, you know, trying to take no shortcuts, but are literally doing things the honest way. What's some tips that you can give them to really level up in life? Because I think, you know, the, like you to, to the point that the points that we're talking about when it comes to robots and, you know, taking, you know, certain people's jobs, that's the reality. Like, where, where do we go from here? Right. Because you're then talking about people, not the jobs that they once had are now going to be taken. Um, and it's the reality. But also you have people who still had that same work at the that are looking, you know, looking for proper employment. But the pay and the criteria, uh, and I think this was the point that Dave was making, right? You got people that are working two, three jobs right now that really can't still, really still can't afford an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment, maybe let alone even a one-bedroom apartment. So can we can we talk about that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Those are those are great questions, and you're you're right, innovations. You're right on point, and 
the one thing I have to share to say is being that neutral third party convener, I, I can't get into prescriptive mm-hmm. solutions and think and 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 and, and yeah, I can't get into prescriptive solutions, but uh, but I will share some thoughts that are uh, that are anchored in research. Mm-hmm. There's been a great deal of research that has shown, and, and, and I think you, and then you'll be able to infer <laughs> what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting or, or what I'm sharing. Uh, but there's been a great deal of research that is that has shown, uh, basically since the 1980s, basically since the 1980s, that two things happen: one, black-white inequality economically worsened, and growing income inequality. So regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, right? If you were in the lower part of the earnings earning earning scale, uh, you you had greater difficulty. When people start to identify causes in that research, they use the following model or framework. S stands for I'll call it labor supply. So that means people. That means education experience, use of drugs, um, participation in illegal activity, um, D, labor demand. Mm-hmm. What are firms doing? Where are firms choosing to locate? Do larger firms, what's happened to that advantage of working for a large firm that, that, we've, that research has shown if you work for a larger firm on average, you're gonna earn more. And, and there's a debate as to why, um, but it's an empirical statistical fact. And then there's I for institutions. And when you start to look at those supply, demand, and institutional features, start in the 1980s, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about institutions. Yeah, you have to see that, and it's been shown in the in the, in the research, the data. There's been a massive decline in union membership, mm-hmm. and unions. Yes, they were. They've had their moments where some of them were very racist, but but unions on average, union workers on average, earn about ten to fifteen percent more than non-union workers. And union, and it's been shown that union pay, in particular, help has helped to address some of the gender pay gap, the racial pay gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's been research to show that the decline in unionization um, has played a role and not just with compensation, but you, cause unions bargain over research has shown unions bargain mm-hmm. more for more than just wages and compensation mm-hmm. working conditions. Right. Um, there's been in this research also is focused on globalization the globalization, that the, the movements of, of companies outside of the U.S., um, particularly the Midwest, right? that the industrialization, that that explains why uh, particularly non-college educated black men um, in the Midwest really, they, they saw their earnings go from parity in the early 1980s to being about uh, behind by about 18 to 20% by the end of the 1980s. But the one challenge here is that Oh, I'm sorry. So let's let's go. So institutions, and another institution or nor societal norm is discrimination. Mm-hmm. That there have been right 
a variety of studies now that have been showing even discrimination shows up in AI, where 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 companies may be looking at um, at, res at resumes. There's been a great some great work done by Diva Pager. She passed away a number of years ago, but she did some great work to show how um, employers um, are choosing on based of names. That if you have a, a name that sounds black sounding, right, that they mm -hmm. tend not they tend to you know, get or have fewer opportunities in getting job interviews or job offers. So, uh, so there's, there's, unfortunately, there's no single bullet. And that's where a lot of people at times will push me and say, Bill, if you were king for the day or president for the day or you know, whatever, <laughs> what would, you know, what's the one thing that you could do? And the challenge is, is that the, the, what, it, what the non, what the young high school graduate who may be choosing not to go on for more education, his, his or her challenges are different from the kid who's winning a college degree. Right. And so we have to think about the, the, the different experiences that, 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 uh, that, folk, that folks are having, because there's no silver bullet here. Uh, that, that, and so the framework I leave with you is think about the labor supply, people. What are people bringing to the table? Mm -hmm. And, and there's been a great deal of research to show that prior to the 80s that a lot of the convergence in opportunity was because blacks right, went on and continued and, and got more schooling. They got access to schooling. Um, and, 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 that, and, and schooling differences still matter and explain uh, some of these outcomes. But there are these other factors like labor demand, what are the, how firms are they're practicing, where they're choosing to locate. Um, there's been a big issue around transportation. Right, particularly again for low to moderate income uh, workers, right, and and getting and getting access to transportation. So, um, this isn't to say that all all is lost, but but I think it it is what I'm sharing with you. There is a framework for thinking about how we can make the make these changes. Uh, and you know, another model that I've or framework that I've really have gotten into. Uh, writing about and 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 it does put economics on the back seat a little bit, but that is um, work on. Uh, it's called the um, it's called a model on social determinants of health. Hmm. Social determinants of health, and basically, instead of the job or the wage that you're getting being the outcome, it's some measure of your health, right? your health status. And there's been, and when one of the things out of that's come out of uh, the the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Michael Ferguson, right, has been this. Let's go. We businesses, you got to go beyond. You got to go beyond just abhorring the treatment of black people and others by the police. You actually have to make some commitments. So you have to go are, beyond just dropping a million dollars into a community. You have to go beyond essentially just putting up a social media posting for CSR purposes. Yeah, 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 and and really start to make some commitments. And I, I have a number of friends who work for a variety of company, large companies, and and doing some great um, equi health equity types of work. Uh, where we where, where we're getting into the conversation about access to just the different drugs. Um, what does your clinical trial group look like? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yes, the, 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 there's a lot of work for us to do. Uh, but, but I, but I, but, you know, I've been at this work for probably, I guess I came out of grad school in 19, 
93. So if you can do some quick math, you can figure out how old I am if you want. But uh, but but I but I have but I still uh, I still uh, am hopeful. Still, I'm optimistic about the work. That, that would be 1993, Lawrence. It's a good year. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was, that was that was grad school. That was grad school. I was uh, college was 1986. You could be my son. <laughs> <laughs> so you're one of my kids. <laughs> So, so I guess yeah. the question that I have, you know, yes. you know, just sitting back and just taking in the entire conversation and then I want to, you know, leave it with, you know, these phenomenal individuals to ask you a question uh, to take it home tonight. But I guess the biggest question is, you know, knowing what we know now, mm-hmm. knowing what sits ahead of us, yeah. you know, what can we do? Like, you know, I, I love challenges. And I'm probably sure that a lot of the cousins that are watching the show tonight and that will watch it also like when they wake up tomorrow, you know, the biggest question that will be asked is, you know, what can we do? You know, how can we be, what, what, what are some of the things that we can do to be more conscious? Um, even if there are shameless plugs as it pertains to just sharing with us the information of where, we can, where individuals can get more of your research, one. Um, but two, like how should, as members of the economy mm-hmm. that literally produce major moves that will literally have effects on GDP, you know, what are some of the moves that, you know, what should we do to look towards moving that needle? Yeah. Um, again, you know, marvelous question. It's these are the kinds of questions that uh, like keep, keep, keep me up at night. Um, and I'll, 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 sh- I'll answer in a variety, I think a few ways. Hopefully they'll be helpful. I can't be prescriptive in what in in what in what I say or you know supporting certain organizations or groups, but um, but building on what I had said about the research and what happened after the nineteen what's been happening after the nineteen eighties. Yep. Right. That that institutions matter. Right. Um, that may sound like yeah, duh, but but but. But we have to. I think many people have to re-engage and reconnect to um, supporting those kinds of institutions that help to um, sort of smooth out, right, the, the hurdles that that uh, capitalism creates, right, and 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 that can be focusing on providing opportunity. It can be focused on providing that social safety net or support for when a pandemic hits, when a, when a natural disaster hits your community, a tornado hits, a flood hits, right? Uh, and, and what this is called, the United Nations had developed a number of years ago, it's called, called human priority investments. And these are investments in human capital. So that's like education and training, but most importantly, social capital. And 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 what do I mean by social capital? I mean basically by the interactions, the intersection, and the work that we do in our local communities. Right? That not only did Bill Clinton get it right, if it's the economy, it's the economy stupid. Add on one step from what former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill used to say: all politics is local. My view is all economics is local. Mm. And so it can be as and so getting involved in your community 
it can, which could be as simple as being on a school board or being just uh, wary of some of the conversations, such as when I first moved to Williamsburg, Virginia, <laughs> um, I ended up hearing this debate or commentary by some of our white, my white friends who were on PDA or some of the white teachers who I had been, I was working with. And they were just so frustrated with, why don't black parents come to the, come to the, um, come to the parent teacher conferences? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But, but people in that community didn't, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have that awareness, right? They, they thought it was, well, black parents won't care about their kids. And, and I basically asked them, you know, we're not a manufacturing town with, with shifts, but we are a tourist town and it does have shifts. When is the eat? When do the evening folks come in and work at the hotel? Three o'clock in the afternoon. When do people have their parent teacher conversations? Three o'clock in the afternoon. Right? And so we built a narrative and helped and helped to change that narrative. And so the school, um, I don't know what they're doing now, but but we started to see them offering to to meet at different times, uh, not only the teachers but even but the PTA. So. So the general idea is really working locally. Um, uh, I've had I've done done work on not just school boards but the planning board. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great group that I, I got to speak at in, up in Bentonville, Arkansas, a couple months ago. Uh, the Urban Land Institute, their regional group, and just and that they asked me to talk about the built environment and how that right creates opportunity or creates right inequities. So be engaged in that conversation. Right, about about how your community is growing. What kind of transportation opportunities do people have to get to jobs? Okay. Um, but the bottom, but another way of really bringing this all together is a, is that I've had a lot of people grow, when I was get growing up or in my career, people talk about you need a mentor. You got to have mentors, and I think mentors are great. But I've come over my time to talk about the need for you having to have advocates for your success. Mm. Yes advocates for your success. And so all four of you all are advocates for each other's success. What do I mean by that? It means that the success of Joel and Dave is in your DNA, right? That that you all are looking out for each other in terms of right, opportunities uh, and, 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 and advocates for success could be teachers, parents, right? Could be, there could be all types of dimensions, but the bottom line is back to this idea of that um, your success or being successful is uh, really radiates down to your DNA. Uh, and then the final thing I'll just say is um, I had a conversation after I worked at the labor department, I was out in San Diego visiting my cousin, who's a uh, very good lawyer, uh, went to a very, a very good college, very good school for law school. And he kept, he said to me, goes, so what do you want to be? Mm. You want to be, and he and, and and he was he was looking for me to say, I want to be Secretary of Labor at some point. <laughs> 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 and I and I and I said to him, Carl, I'm mission driven. Mm. My mission is all about empowering people and communities with economic thought and analysis. What does that mean? That means when I wake up in the morning and the day, my decision on what I what I want to work on, what I want to do, all it hinges is upon is it my mission. Mm-hmm. And so starting out in academia, where we have three criteria, your teaching, service, and your research. And so I would always 
couch anything I would do with my teaching research or services, does it fit into empowering people? Right? And, and I think I would share, from my experiences, I would share with folks is that you know, the dream job is great, but you'll be happier, more content, I think if you can focus on um, a mission, have that personal mission. And, then, and I think that then drives back to mark your question of what we can do. Uh, so, Bill, I have a question. I know we're running for time and also it's dinner time, but um, <laughs> you're talking about, you're talking about the things that like really speak to me. So um, as you can see, I'm the first lady of leisure. Um, and in my mind, like right now, I'm currently um, developing um, a model for economic freedom that's rooted in leisure, where when you, when I talk about leisure, it's more about creating value. Um, and as when Dave was talking earlier about like AI and how, you know, a lot of those um, those types of jobs would be replaced by robotics and other um, AI vehicles. Um, it just got me to thinking about like what. Um, what do you see for the future in that, um, especially as it relates to a potential, you know, universal basic income? Or um, I personally envision a model where people are people can actually create value, contribute value that you know converts to money, um, in the sense that it's something that AI can't replicate. So my question, I guess, then becomes one based on, um, you know, some of the models that you've talked about. Are there some models that um, I could be looking at um, as to further my own research um, as it relates to like getting rid of this whole concept of labor? Because I'm of the opinion that our ancestors labored enough um, and they if we're their wildest, if we're their wildest dreams, like, let's be frank labor is not a part of their wildest dreams. It just isn't. And so um, I just want to know like where to go, what things, what other things, you know, can be looking at, especially as like for me, developing this um, model, leisure as um, a model for economic freedom, that's my contribution. That's the part that I want to contribute to help build these rungs on the ladder and to help, you know, lift, you know, the cousins um, out of that mindset of you have to work, 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 work hard, work hard, work hard, because we are getting burnt out. You know, Lawrence talked about those two to three jobs and not being able to afford your rent. That is absolutely ridiculous. And so anyway, just whatever thoughts you have on anything that was just mentioned. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's maybe two places that you might might look. Mm -hmm. I, I have not really spent a lot of time reading it, mm -hmm. but uh, there's an economist, uh, Juliet Shore, uh, S-C-H-O-R, and uh, I'm not sure if she's still at Harvard, but uh, she and, and others have been getting into this work called uh, Economics of, of Happiness, mm -hmm. uh, basically, of, of happiness. And, and, and the, you know, the, the standard labor model or labor, or model, labor supply model that, you, uh, that's, that gets taught in undergraduate or graduate mm -hmm. um, you know, the it's funny that you may raise this, that you're focused on leisure, because when these models are di diagrammed and you first learn about them, actually leisure leisure is what's the choice model, was is what the choice is. Right. And that we're and then that based upon the wage offer you get and your non-labor income, that then leads you down a path of I'm gonna choose this amount of leader, which then means you're gonna do this amount of work. Right, that, that work is that in these models that that work is not the is 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 
now it's this it's the inverse of leisure but what i'm trying but what, what i'm trying to say is in these models actually leisure is what you're choosing mm-hmm. um, and and so i so i think you know, you're, you're definitely on to something uh it's a very compelling and disturb unfortunately disturbing work right that has been done that you, um, you may be familiar with but it's just uh, it's just a, it's a book called deaths of despair um by um angus deaton and ann case and no, they they focus on trying to understand why mortality rates in the United States have, have fallen uh, since the 1990s. And, mm. and there's two observations. One is, that this is the deaths of despair. It's accidental deaths, um, overdosing, uh, suicide, and then um, basically alcoholism. So mm. sclerosis of the liver. And that those three things have just taken off here in the United States. And, um, and there it's what they find, the second part of what I was gonna share with them, that one of the big reasons is because it's been a largely uh, non-college ed- educated white men have been driving that, that, that shift. Now, when, you know, when our mission, we, when we talk about it at the Institute, you know, yes, we focus on economic outcomes, but actually sitting on top of those outcomes that we focus on is happiness, is whether you're thriving, right, mm-hmm. healthy. So I think that 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 uh, um, the model I mentioned about uh, uh, where health is the outcome, mm-hmm. and that and that 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 might be another entryway to you for you to think about, right? That that we're really wanting to refocus. This is about leisure, right? What can we do to to a make it, yeah, to to have us be healthier people um and and which is directly related to having more leisure right or or uh and actually there's another really great model i i was doing creating a training for my uh fellow officers and managers in our um in our division and this uh, the surgeon general of the united states has this really great model that they've created there uh, and that you can track down and it basically is his statement is that we want businesses or companies to be engines of wellness Mm. they use the phrase engines of wellness and they go and from there they go and they said they created this model where they call that's like the five essentials to wellness right one of them is security that you can be secure in your workplace that's physically emotionally right psychologically Um, and then there are four other um, other other uh, sort of essentials that are associated with that, and that would be also helpful too. So, but I'm but I'm happy to talk offline uh, about some other other possibilities. Oh yeah, we got one we got one final question for this evening, and then we're gonna we're gonna call it because y'all we, we he's coming back, <laughs> he's coming back. So don't worry, this is definitely gonna probably have multiple sets of parts. So, but go ahead. Uh, it, it would it would be it would definitely be fitting for Dave to take us home and give us the final question for the evening. Okay, um, so one thing that we see is this change in um, just how the economy is measured and really what that economy looks like with every single generation. Like what was measured as a healthy economy back in the baby boomers are very different now that millennials are basically at their prime buying power. And it might look very different when Gen Zs uh, 
get to their prime. The U.S. economy right now is 70 percent service services. Is that really sustainable for the next generation? Uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a great question, and and I think the the what what comes to mind for me, thinking about really quickly thinking about this question, is when I came to the labor department in two thousand, we had uh, or just had just published. A, a volume called Future Work, Trends and Challenges for the 21st Century. And the premise, the way the, the, way the book set, or the volume set up was an identification of three broad trends. And what three broad trends did, they were, well, first off, they were globalization, so immigration trade. They were technology. So at that time, it was the barcode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, so immigration, trade, globalization, that's one. Technology is two. And the third was the changing demography of the nation. Uh, The next point in this was those three changes influenced or changed how we work, when we work, where we where we work and with whom we work. Mm-hmm. The pandemic is the new, if you will, structural change. Right? It's changing. It's changed the scaffolding around work, when you work, how you work, where you work. Right. Um, we are, as a society, trying to figure out where that new normal is going to be. Right? Um, is it going to be a new normal where? you're going to see more institutional support to help cushion the blows of capitalism, Mm. right? Or is it going to be more of what I call it a la carte model where a lot of the, uh, what, and again, we have to be careful. Mm -hmm. A lot of blacks didn't have access to the menu, right? That is living in a community that's got good schools, safe streets, right? You know where you're. You can get your. You know, go to the grocery store, et cetera. But we've now moved to what I call an a la carte society, where, and it's not just blacks having difficulty, right? That the research shows that right there's an increasing number of whites who are having difficulty getting the menu. That if that they are also in this a la carte kind of economy where they have that uh, if you where you can participate in a la carte if you got the money, if you got the resources, if you got the wealth. Right. And, you know, we're we're moving in a direct continue to move in a direction where we've we've slowed down our investments in human priorities. Mm -hmm. And when we've done that, income inequality rises, expands or you have more households that are Alice. We're at a fork in the road as as a society, as a nation. And we and, and, and that's one reason why I love being at the Fed is that we're part of this conversation. And again, we're not telling people what to do, but we're using the data analysis and some narratives to help people right, in their communities at that local level figure out how they want to chart a course for themselves. And you know, and if they do, if they choose those those choices um, that are about right, investing in people, that are about creating leisure, right? That are where people are resting. That if you're creating an economy or communities where people are advocates for each other's success. 
things will get will sort themselves out, right? And if you we we create a culture of people being lifelong learners, independent thinkers, and responsible citizens, it'll work out. I'm going to say it's official. You are officially off the hot seat. <laughs> what? Well, wait, the, wait, 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 That's what that was. <laughs> so there is one question left. There is one question yeah. that we, we ask everybody. Yeah. It's the cookout. What cousin are you? <laughs> what, what cousin are you? What, what cousin are you? That's when we say, okay, like, that's cousin Bill over there. He's he's blank. He's that blank cousin. Which one? Yeah. Well, I I can and I can and I can answer that. Um, <laughs> I was the, I was I was the cousin who was coming to Memphis and hadn't had ribs in about you know six months. <laughs> and, my, and, my, and, and my and my uncle saying to me, Bill Rogers, you know my dog's gonna come get you because you're you're not leaving any meat for him. <laughs> I'm that cousin. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you all also at home or wherever you are for watching because this has been such an impactful conversation. And trust and believe, Bill is definitely going to be back on the show because he has a lot of research to share with us. We're going to get a little bit further into the weeds on more episodes with him coming back. We know he's busy because he does a lot at the Fed. He just told you what his day looks like, but trust and believe he is definitely coming back. Maybe if not on executive education, maybe on Monday night take with Lawrence, but we're definitely going to keep this conversation going. So thank each and every single one of you at home for watching. Shout out to our cousins on LinkedIn. Shout out to our YouTube cousins, people in the United States, around the world, wherever you are. Thank you. We appreciate each and every single one of you until next time. I am Mark Monroe. Oh, you guys can just like literally just say your names. That's fine. <laughs> you know, I'm Lawrence Eggleston. They call me the Panther. Though, so. <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. They found us the uh, engineering economist cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, cousin Bill. Bill Rogers. <laughs> love soccer. Right. Hey, I'm cousin love soccer. You already know I'm Bill NGC in the place to be. And this has been your come up. We will see you guys next week, but make sure you tune in tomorrow for Chris and Abby's financial advisement. Uh, until next time, peace, y'all. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Cousin Bill. Thank you. Thank you.